Good morning. Yesterday morning, Akinchano offered reflections on the theme of citta, uh, so the the contemplation of moods and mental states. And uh, this morning, just a, a few reflections on an aspect of our experience that's very closely related to moods and mental states, which is the theme of thoughts and thinking. And, you know, as meditators, we can have the uh, conscious or unconscious view that somehow the aim is to get rid of thoughts, you know, because they're the, the problem. They get in the way. Uh, but just to notice uh, a couple of things. Firstly, that, that that aversion to thoughts, conscious or unconscious, will be enough to give them solidity <laughs> and, and keep them kind of, keep them coming, you know, uh, and feeling solid. You know. uh, and uh, as one, yeah, Somebody commented yesterday that, that uh, you know, thinking, skillful thinking, is very much part of practice. You know, thoughts are not the enemy. You know that they they are an inevitable aspect of our experience and can be profoundly, you know, helpful, reflective, creative, and you know, part of our contemplative practice, you know, the, the thoughts of metta, or the thought, not me, not mine, you know. Uh, this is one dimension of mindfulness, is the skillful use of perception shaped or articulated by thought. So we could say, you know, uh, the aim is, is not freedom from thoughts and thinking, but perhaps f- greater freedom with thoughts. And, and thinking, and if we were going to um, identify some intentions for our practice with thoughts and thinking, uh, we could say that you, you know perhaps one would be to develop our capacity for this freedom with for for a more spacious relationship with thought and thinking. Yeah. So that would be one intention. Another might be to develop our skill for practicing with difficult thought patterns. You know, when, when it's very intense or entangling, how, how can we develop our skills for working with those times? A third theme for for practicing with thoughts might be to to kind of understand experientially more and more the shaping power of thoughts and thinking. It's the way in which they so powerfully condition and kind of fabricate our experience. So to investigate them in that that uh, 
light. And as the Kinshino acknowledged yesterday, you know, how does one feed a mood? Well, think, you know. And uh, we can see that unpleasant moods and mental states tend to come with more thought and story, don't they? You know, if, if we wake up in the morning feeling, you know, content and peaceful, we don't tend to think, oh God, why am I feeling like this? Well, what does this mean about me? What does it mean about my future? You know, we don't kind of react so much. They just don't fabricate so much thinking, do they? And if, if we reflect on that and say, well, what's going on in unpleasant moods and mental states that generates thinking? Well, isn't it reactivity to the Vedana of the mood or mental state? It's unpleasant. And so the thinking mind comes along and tries to solve the unpleasantness, tries to eliminate it, tries to get rid of it somehow. You know, so it's a kind of problem-solving mode that kicks in. You know, trying to help, trying to help, but but does it help? <laughs> well, doesn't the the kind of the ruminating, to use the kind of psychological term for it, the ruminating will also be unpleasant, which will lower the mood, which will trigger more thinking. <laughs> which will lower the mood. And there's a kind of feedback loop, kind of spiraling downwards, you know, which is actually the insight that gave, gave rise to mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, that seeing that it's uh, the reactivity to ordinary low mood. For those of us with a, a history of depression, or, or anxiety, it's the reactivity to that, the cognitive reactivity, the thinking that that triggers, that actually takes me down, you know. And the, the, the Buddha really recognizes this and names this tendency to ruminate, which is what cows do, right? You know, that they kind of chew, swallow, regurgitate it, chew it again, swallow, regurgitate, you know. To ruminate and overthink, it recognizes it, names it with this term, papancha. Papancha. And we've actually referred to both parts of that word in the last couple of days. Jaya gave us pancha, meaning five, you know in relation to the five khandhas. And then pa, do you remember, mean, meaning thoroughly. Hmm. What are we to make of that? Thoroughly five. Well, you know, one possibility is that, that rumination and papancha makes things seem real and accessible to our five senses, our five physical senses you know, that makes things seem solid. D- d- does that make sense? You s- so it's like, it's thoroughly five, thoroughly <laughs> seeming solid, you know. That kind of 
philosophical term might be reification, reification, turning, creating things, creating things. And it's so easy for us to believe our ruminations as being true, isn't it? You know, so they seem so real. I think, was it Mark Twain who said, most of the worst events of my life never actually happened, <laughs> you know, and yet seem so real, you know. This is, Papancha is the agent of fabrication, construction, solidification. And, you know, also, you know, complication. The usual, one of the images the Buddha uses for Papancha is is a net, spreading out a net that we kind of get entangled in. And the more we kind of think and ruminate, the more entangled we become, you know. So the, the, yeah, the, the, the translation of Papancha as proliferation, spreading out and multiplying. Isn't this what thought so easily does? And the, the reactivity to the mood and to the, to the unpleasant Vedana of the, the thought uh, has a it invokes similar perceptions and associations. So, so don't we find we start thinking about something difficult and then we kind of find something else to think about on the same theme and it just kind of spreads out and until, you know, my whole life feels like a disaster. depressing. And so really to kind of recognize that, the Buddha, Buddha, or the commentaries at least, identify three very characteristic themes of papancha, this ruminative spreading. One is craving. And of course we could include in that craving and aversion. You know, when there's a lot of craving and aversion, there tends to be a lot of thinking, doesn't there? Another would be views and opinions. You know, that, that, that they're such a, a net, aren't they, that we get kind of entangled in views and opinions that proliferate and, you know, and kind of expand to include everything. Another is kind of self-positioning. So superiority, inferiority. It's often translated conceit. Can we sense how the kind of status anxiety, it's often called, you know, how am I in comparison with these other people, you know, or with some imagined ideal of how I think I should be, you know. Anybody not recognize these three (laughs) kind of kinds of papancha, you know? Craving aversion, views, kind of 
status anxiety. Christina Feldman, I think, helpfully suggests a fourth theme, which is fear. Just to kind of acknowledge how generative fear-based papancha is. Things seem so real, as Mark Twain implies. And what is it that makes them seem so real? Well, isn't it the, the aversion, the craving or aversion to the Vedana of the thought? So the pleasantness of something. Get busy planning and it all seems so real, so alive, so thoroughly five, <laughs> you know, thoroughly vivid, you know. Or the aversion, you know, it's aversion and clinging, it's this, this craving and clinging that makes things seem so solid. Ajahn Suchito sometimes says, the most solid thing in the universe is our fixations, our craving and clinging. Makes things seem, makes that thought, that scenario seem so solid. And, and the identification with it, I was reflecting last night, you know, just the believing it as me or mine, believing the appearance as being me or about me, you know. It's a kind of clinging, isn't it, this selfing. And, you know, just to really acknowledge the, the kind of... Uh, pathos of this theme, you know, so much of our suffering is in relation to thinking, isn't it? Overthinking, believing our thoughts as thoroughly five, thoroughly solid. And the Buddha very tellingly says, you know, ordinary folk delight in papancha. Delight in papancha. We kind of can find on retreat kind of entertainment thinking going on, you know, the breath is feeling a bit neutral and so the mind goes into the cinema and puts on a movie, you know, and, and there's a kind of entertainment going, we delight in it. He said, awakened ones delight in nipapancha, so the, so the non-proliferation, and indeed the Buddha uses nipapancha as a synonym for Nibbāna, as a word to refer to Nibbāna, so the non-proliferating state. And, you know, this practice really does ask us to kind of um, re-evaluate our relationship with thought. Are we going to give it the same authority? Are we going to uh, believe the the simulations and fictions of the the mind in the same way, and really to kind of look at well, what helps in in the actual practice of this? You know? 
having a ground in the body that is not caught up in thinking is so helpful, isn't it? Because again, that, that theme of accelerators and brakes, if I'm with the, uh, just with the emotion and with this part of the body, it may accelerate it, mightn't it? You know, the, the anxiety that leads to a panic attack, you know, a kind of uh, relationship with, with the breathing of it, the chest and the thoughts, oh, oh my goodness, you know, and we can see that that's an accelerator, well, it's interesting how the heels on the ground or the sit bones on the chair, or you may notice that taking attention to the base of the spine and the tailbone has got quite an interesting kind of breaking effect on papancha. It slows it down a bit. You might just kind of play with that, the boniness, the earth element. So to, to, to have that sense of, okay, what creates a vantage point outside the thought loop? When things are, when thinking is intense and obsessive, really difficult, often, you, you know, walking practice is more helpful than sitting practice. Do you notice that, that, that sometimes sitting can be a bit flooding? You know, when things are difficult. And actually to, to walk with the intensity can help to sometimes to kind of metabolize it. Because it's often, if it's intense, got a kind of fight-flight energy about it anyway. You know, uh, and actually that's needing a certain kind of physical expression and discharge. I think often we, we in daily life, when we think of practice, we think of sitting practice and don't necessarily do walking practice in daily life so much. And yet it can be so helpful. You know. The Buddha, you know, in his teaching on removing distracting thought patterns, spoke about replacing thoughts. Replacing difficult thoughts with a wholesome thought. And this might point to, say, using metaphrases. When the mind is obsessive, using metaphrases as a kind of protection for the mind. May I be safe and well in the midst of this. May I be peaceful in the midst of this. May I live with ease and kindness in the midst of this. May I be safe and well in the midst of it. So we kind of use the phrases to kind of protect the mind. The Buddha compared it to like putting a, 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 a new peg in a wooden hole where the old peg has gone rotten. So it's kind of replace the rotten <laughs> thought, the difficult one, with a healthy one, because the mind can't, you know, focus on both at the same, in the same moment. That's one of the ways in which matter can be deeply protective. Some of you have noticed how uh, when there is a sense of a, a thought loop that keeps coming back, to, send, to ask the question, is there an emotion that's fueling this? Almost like we kind of duck under the narrative level of the thought and just, what's the feeling here? Oh, oh, there's sadness, you know. Or there's, oh, there's anxiety. Can I allow that? Can I breathe with that? And sometimes, sometimes we find that that really takes the energy out of the thinking just to, to kind of release the pressure of the emotion that had been going into thinking.
sometimes we can notice when we, we do that, that the thinking is going on because there's a belief here that this matters for my safety or my happiness. And therefore, of course, the mind keeps ruminating about it. You know? Sometimes just to acknowledge that, oh, there's a belief here that's giving fuel to the papancha, even though it's so, so difficult to be with. And uh, the, the kind of suggestions from last evening around these, these three liberating ways of looking, very helpful in the domain of thought, just to notice change. So that even the, the kind of torrential stream of thinking, you can say, oh, they're changing, changing, changing. Or if we notice that we're caught in a lot of thinking, we'll probably notice that the body has tightened up. The the upadana clenching is happening. And just to kind of keep relaxing the body can sometimes help to take pressure out of the thinking. Okay, there's this distress here, but I'm just going to keep moving because the tightening up will, will pump the thinking up, make it feel more thoroughly five. And then, and perhaps you know, most significantly, that the practice of anatta, the practice of not-self in relation to, to thinking. You know? Not me, not mine, just thoughts. And some of you will be used to using imagery to help with this practice. So, you know, one traditional image is thoughts like clouds passing through the sky. Just clouds passing through the sky, you know. Or like buses that come along and want to take us for a ride, you know. Isn't this what thoughts do? And like buses, they tend to go around in circles, you know. <laughs> and that's that sense that, okay, I can see there's a thought bus that I could get on board. Um, or I am on board it, but <laughs> I could get off it because the soles of the feet are on the sidewalk, you know. Th- this bit's right on the bus, you know, but the soles of the feet are on the sidewalk. And just that, okay, let's go to the soles of the feet, because they're not on the bus in the same way. And if we really dwell with the soles of the feet, or the sit bone, we may find that the bus can be there, and the doors are open, and the bus conductor is saying, come on board, yet again, let's go for a ride. You say, no thank you, I'm going to stay on the sidewalk, you know. Do we sense that? And that's the kind of sense we don't have to get rid of thoughts to develop a new relationship with them. You know, they can still be here. The door can be open. Feel the the the, the tug, but there's this sense of okay, no, I'm going to really dwell as best I can. Keep coming back to the the breaks, the parts of the body that are on the sidewalk. And just that recognition can, and a breathing with that can help really metabolize the sense of a freedom with rather than freedom from. 
the thinking. This is, this is what psychologists call metacognition, that ability to treat thoughts as just thoughts. That, that quotation from Joseph that I mentioned last night, you know, how if we haven't seen this not-self nature of thoughts, we're tormented by them. We're on the thought bus going round and round. You know. When we see them as just thoughts, and we really practice what, that, that, then they, as he puts it, become like a wisp of air. There's not much there. You know? And so in this, as in, as in all the, the domains of practice, we see it's the relationship with thoughts and thinking that determines the degree of freedom, the degree of solidity, the degree of suffering. You know? And I, I really appreciate the distinction that Jaya makes between thoughts and thinking. You know? the, 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 the thoughts that will keep arising and passing, the thinking where the relationship has become kind of enmeshed and I'm on the thought bus. Can, can we use these kind of practices to support them just being thoughts coming and going? Some of you will be familiar with uh, labeling kinds of thoughts as a way of encouraging that perspective on them. Planning, planning, judging, judging. Entertainment thinking, entertainment thinking. So, yeah, just an invitation to to make this theme um, part of your practice today and to the extent that it's helpful to do so. Uh, Great opportunity after several days of retreat to use that, um, the level of collectedness or the level of grounding that we have to practice a different relationship with thoughts and thinking in the service of our greater freedom with this aspect of our experience. So let's uh, take some time for that now. As always, so helpful, or if we find it helpful to begin with grounding. Thinking so easily takes us up into the top quarter of the body. 
How is it really to drop down? Into our contact with ground. the earth element in the feet and the legs, the sit bones, base of the spine. Maybe noticing if that has any effect on the experience of thinking in this moment. Does it intensify the thinking or does it quieten it? What a different relationship with it, a more mindful relationship with it. capacity to let thoughts be just thoughts. this theme feels of, of interest to you this morning, you might like to use this sitting to practice listening meditation. Where from a, a groundedness in the body we open to the space of the silence. Out of which sounds emerge and back into which they dissolve. Allowing the sounds to be just sounds. 
just textures of vibration that arise and pass within this open space of awareness. problem if labels or mental images arise naming what we think is making the sounds but can our interest be in the vibrational sense of sounds as just sounds And then if it feels of interest, seeing if we can practice a similar relationship with thinking as it arises and passes within the open space of awareness that's grounded in the body. Sounds as just sounds, thoughts as just thoughts. Not me, not mine. Just thoughts, wisps of air. Arising and passing. playing with these themes and perceptions and ways of looking to whatever extent feels helpful and interesting right now.
I've been really appreciating Chris's um, depiction of clinging and grasping and selfing in a very somatic way the way that there's this kind of contraction and upward movement in the system and I, I wonder if that's helpful for you also sensing that and how when the activity of thinking takes off it's like all the energy moves upwards and particularly helpful I think in the walking meditation to um, see that as a place where some of that can release I was having the sense as I was imagining myself walking of each step being an invitation for a kind of downward movement you know because I think sometimes we can begin to feel that walking meditation is this kind of very challenging project of the head up here trying to keep you know coming out of its more interesting activities and somehow noticing the soles of the feet but actually what about seeing it and maybe this is how you sense it in some way of actually each step the landing of each step is an opportunity for this whole upward movement to do the downward movement of releasing as you contact the earth and that it doesn't matter if thinking is happening thinking might likely be happening so we can have the thinking and the release it's like we can uh, thinking thought you know this is a real uh, would be a, a fascinating thing to play with and uh you know, the two things can be happening. We can be think, walking, thinking and walking, thinking and breathing, and not to underestimate the importance of that and, because that will also, is really what helps us to uh, get that space, that metacognitive perspective on the thinking activity, um, a space in which that can be seen. And, uh, you know, I know that... Uh, some you know we have we have preferences or propensities so some of you I know find it easier to not get lost in the midst of the walking because there's an aliveness and a, an interest in what's happening in the body and maybe some of this kind of soothing dimension of the body helps calm the mind can you import some of that quality of aliveness and that sense of the soothing, the soothing nature of movement into the sitting still. Because how much movement is happening as we sit and we breathe? You know, each breath can have the same effect as one of these steps that goes. And if we're someone who sort of feels that uh, we find a sense of balance and poise and stillness and quiet within the sitting and then that somehow gets disrupted by the activity of walking just what can you learn for yourself about how you import those qualities from the sitting into the walking and just making that a sort of playful experiment 
this body, I mean, we can get very attached to the stillness of our, of our seat and our cushion, but these bodies are like dogs. They appreciate being taken for a walk from time to time. Yeah. It, it, overall, it's a helpful thing to do. Yeah. Uh, so see, if you, if you have an attachment to one or the other, <laughs> see if you can, you can bring some of the quality of of heart-mind that's happening in the one that feels like it's working for you into the other one. And if they both feel like they're not working for you, (laughs) hang in there. (laughs) (laughs) And don't overlook those moments when they are, because it's not working for me is another thought that we get lost in. So notice it at any point in today if you get lost in that thought. It's just a thought. So enjoy your walking meditation, enjoy your sitting meditation. Um, We continue with uh, groups this morning and uh, have a very good morning of practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.